0: When our, we're on our fifth lesson of our, in our study of the fear of man. Many weeks ago, seemingly, we studied what it means to fear. What is the fear of man? We discussed the fact that we all fear man. It is a universal temptation. And then lesson two, we discussed what is the fear of God. And we worked off Ed Welch's definition of the fear of God as reverent submission that leads to obedience. And we discussed the fact we're designed to fear God. Lesson three, we started looking at three different ways that we fear man. And that was that we fear, the first one was that we fear that people will expose us. And we demonstrate that fear and avoid being exposed by a couple ways. We looked at the fact that we hide and cover. We seek to escape. Or we seek to uncover and expose others. As a means to hide and cover and seek to escape, and then Mr. Renfro, Paul Renfro, am I still here? There we go. Mr. Renfro took uh, two lessons to go through the third way that we fear man, appropriately, needing two lessons. The fact that we fear that people will reject us, and we looked at the root cause of the fear of man, especially when we feel reject, when we fear rejection, and that would be pride, lots of pride. Today, we're going to look at the third reason that we fear man. It is that we fear that people will harm us. We fear that people will harm us. And next week, um, potentially, maybe the following week after that, we will conclude our study on how do we put off the fear of man, the old flesh, and putting on the new man created in Christ Jesus. I think the thought would be, well, you've done three messages on different ways you fear man. And how many more ways can you look at it? Well, the solution to every way that we fear man is the exact same. But each different aspect of how we fear man has its own little twists and turns. And the difficulty is, is that we're dealing with the human heart. Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So there, we, we might say, well, I don't fear that people are going to expose me, and I don't fear that uh, I'm going to be rejected, so therefore I'm good to go. And they do all bleed together. They do have some cross uh, crossing over to one another, the solution being the same. But our heart loves to say, well, if we could just compartmentalize this, and if I don't struggle with this one, and I don't struggle with this one, I'm good to roll on down the tracks. The difficulty being that our heart is deceitfully wicked. And this is universal temptation. We're not trying to dredge up something, but we are trying to really use Scripture to be the magnifying glass, be the microscope, as it were, to expose if there's sin. And then through Scripture, we can see how to remedy that sin. Let's go to uh, Genesis chapter 3. quoting from the gentleman who put together this study with Mark Dever there at Host Baptist. Since Cain killed his brother Abel in Genesis 3, men and women have had reason to fear that their fellow man can inflict great harm to the point of death. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we have examples of men and women who feared that people would harm them, in many cases Physically. We don't have to look to Scripture to understand what this struggle looks and feels like. We're all dealing with this in some way, and we all have experience with it in some way. And we certainly look to the pages of Scripture as our authority, but we also have experience as well. It must be noted that when speaking about fearing that others may hurt us, we are not seeking to communicate the need for appropriate concern for one's safety and security or one's family's friends or safety and security. Uh, for instance, we have here at the church, we've instituted a policy, the adult and child protection policy. And our goal for that is to defuse any bad situations and keep uh, people from getting hurt or abused in some way. If you were growing up, uh, in a, if you grew up in a neighborhood, many of you all are in the country, I grew up in a neighborhood, and at that time I didn't know anything about the neighborhood. I just thought, hey, this is just where you grow up, this is all great, this is fine. I go now back you know, 30 years, 27 years later and go visit that neighborhood, that was not a good neighborhood. (laughs) But growing up, man, it was just, it's just what everybody does. Yeah, I do have a different perspective, as well pointed out. I do have a different perspective as a dad. But we bordered a really bad neighborhood. So it wouldn't have been wise for my dad to say, yeah, just go on a walk, do whatever you like. No, appropriately, he would have gone on the walk with me or sent some adult to help protect there. So, There's those appropriate measures. A father may uh, feel the necessity to train his family to protect themselves in some way, shape, or form. If there's an intruder or if there's someone who attacks them, how do you protect yourself? These would be appropriate concerns, and the steps taken for safety would be healthy and good and godly in how you go about protecting oneself. So certainly in our study of fear this morning, it regards um, fearing... The others will harm us, but as um, sin often does, it takes what is a good and healthy concern and takes it over to the sin camp, takes it to the extreme. So we're not communicating it by any means that you should not use wise, appropriate means to protect oneself. We fear that people can harm us because they can. And before we go to this Genesis passage, I want to read from Matthew ten twenty eight. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body... But cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body and helm. Now a little audience participation here. Can people harm us? Yes. Can people harm us outside of God's sovereign control? No. no they cannot. But it may very much seem that way. Now everyone has the capacity to harm you. But God's the one who allows them to have the ability at that particular time. He's in control. Let me read from Psalm 94, 14 through 23. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous. And all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me, the psalmist speaking, against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. God has sovereign control over everything that happens. But according to Matthew ten twenty-eight, we certainly see that people can afflict the greatest physical harm possible on us. They can kill us. But Christ is recognizing in that passage that they can hurt us and they can kill us. But as Christians, if that's what we're focused on, our compass of fear is pointed in the wrong direction. Is our earthly body really more important than our eternal soul? No, it's not. How much more important is the state of our soul than the health of our body? Well, the difference between the health of your body and the state of your soul is eternal. It is drastically far greater to fear the one who can control the eternal nature of your soul than it is someone who could hurt you or even kill you. And yet that person is still under the sovereign control of the one who controls your soul for eternity. Quote, God should be far above man in our fear, the one who is able to determine our eternal destiny, whether we live in everlasting judgment or everlasting life. This is the one who should be utmost in our fears. This is the one in whom we should place our trust, this is the one who should control our lives, this is the one we should serve. Unquote. And yet, even knowing that God controls the final judgment, we still struggle with fearing that man will harm us. Why? Two reasons. Two reasons. The first one, the both of them are found here in Genesis uh, 1 through 4. So let's go to uh, beginning there looking at Genesis 1. And let's start at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea. Over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said. Behold I have given you every plant yielding seed. That is on the face of all the earth. Every seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And God continues with the blessing of these things. And then we get down to. Chapter two. We see that God. Has made man. And now he brings man a helper. In the form of Eve. And he puts man to work in verse 15 of chapter two. The Lord God took the man. Put him in the garden of Eden, Eden to work it. And to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every, uh, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And we know that Adam and Eve, they were walking with the Lord. They were with him in perfect communion. And not only were they with him in perfect communion, they were with one another in perfect communion. That's why when you come to Christ with the gospel, you see that you're not only reconciled as man to God, you're reconciled man to man. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's reconciliation both ways. First reason why we continually struggle with this fear that someone will harm us, understanding that God holds the final judgment, is we were not created to harm one another or be harmed by another. You were not created for that you were created to be in perfect fellowship with God and therefore perfect fellowship with your fellow man. The second reason you see picking up in chapter 4 is because of the fall, we now have personal experience with someone harming us or harming another person. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, this is chapter 4 of Genesis, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the first fruit, firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And we see here the first instance of conflict or harm between man to man. Now, we don't know if there was anything before that. I think we could probably assume that there was. There had been the fall. Adam and Eve were now in sin. I'm sure that they had some conflict in their marriage. And Adam and uh, Abel and Cain, that probably wasn't their first brotherly tiff. But this is the first one that's recorded in Scripture. And because of that, now we have experience. And even if someone's never harmed you, If you go read scripture, you now have experience of seeing how people have harmed other people. And we have to fight these things. Now, I'm not saying that our experiences are um, an excuse for sin. I am responsible for how I react to sin, other people's sin. And I'm responsible to making sure that it's a righteous response. You are responsible for your sin. Uh, Both in what you do and how you respond as well. So our experiences are certainly not our excuses. But uh, do not give us an excuse for sin. But they certainly do cause us to have that difficulty. Quote, if you are someone who grew up in a physically or verbally abusive home... Or worked for an abusive boss. This can serve to influence your expectation of others. The fact that you are tempted to not trust others after this type of experience is not sin. Hear me clearly. That temptation is not sin. I want to be very clear on this point. A temptation to sin in a particular manner is not the sin itself. So just as some may be more tempted to lying or to anger or to greed or to laziness. So it is with temptation to be controlled by fear of harm from others. But you should not think that your pro- proclivity to this temptation either excuses sin or means that you cannot trust and fear the Lord, unquote. And I would add that though you struggle with that sin and uh, though you may have been harmed, that doesn't mean that you can grow and change from it and never, through the power of Christ, not struggle in that area or struggle far less than you currently do. Ephesians 4, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ has given us the freedom and the power at our fingertips uh, to change and to uh, put off the old man, to put on the new. Certainly never are we going to be perfect, but we can progress in our sanctification. We can grow in holiness. And we can fight and win the battle against particular sins. You may not, as I have said, come into contact with being harmed by another. But it's all around us. You may have friends that have been harmed. Maybe it's uh, something you saw in the news. Maybe it's in scripture. When you reflect on the Lord and you see in Isaiah chapter 53 that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted. And he poured out his life to the point of death. You get experience. You get understanding. You become acquainted with the fact that harm people harm one another. Why do we struggle with fear? According to Genesis 1-4, through we are not created to harm one another or be harmed by another. And second reason, because of the fall, our personal experience lends us to struggle with fear. Now, let me give a balanced view of Scripture here. We've got to continually seek for that. That is not to say that you will not have people harm you. In fact, you are promised that you will have people harm you. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Job 5.7, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So you're certainly going to have that difficulty with other people, and they're certainly going to harm you. But the question is, will you fear that? We've got to understand God's control and use of this suffering, whether mental, physical, spiritual, or emotional. And that's the beauty and the graciousness and the loving kindness of our Savior is that he would take all those things and he'd use them for good to the conformity of his son according to Romans 8:29. So there are there is a purpose for these things, but we cannot fear it. What are some of the ways we struggle with fear of others harming us? And we're going to look at some categories of how we struggle. And we've looked in scripture, we realize that uh, some of these things are past experiences. And so some of these things might be foreign to you depending upon your experiences and they might be very fresh to you. You may struggle uh, with uh, having others harm you or being harmed currently by your family. Maybe it's a husband or the wife. Maybe it's uh, in-laws or the outlaws, as it were. (laughs) Maybe you're involved in some sort of family dynamic that really has caused harm on you. Maybe it's um, sexual exploitation. Maybe you're at a workplace and someone has made advances that are very difficult for you. Emotionally and physically, taking, trying to take advantage of you. Well, that can be harming. Bullying. Uh, I didn't grow up in the public school, but no one's immune probably from this. I remember growing up with kids that you just kind of had a terror of. You know, they were bigger than you. They were stronger than you. And they they like to pick on you, and uh, you you develop these these experiences. How about uh, those serving in the military? You may have a fear of going into combat, and what others are going to be able to do to you. You may have a category of fear that would be involved with persecution or physical suffering because of the gospel. So you're limited by how you share the gospel. Maybe you fear this is how these things bleed together. You fear that someone's going to reject you and then they're going to harm you. Maybe it's terrorism. This is something that many years ago you wouldn't have had to deal with. But after 9-11, things have escalated in terrorism. So maybe this is a fear that someone may harm you. This This is an interesting one. Do, you, do we fear the unsaved that they will harm us? Those that have a moral compass that points differently than, than we do. And so do we carry that fear into how we present the gospel with others? Or maybe we're not interested in speaking to a certain group of people because we fear that, that they will harm us. Now again, there's prudence in what you say and who you say it to and the people that you have around that I'm not... Uh, suggesting that you just go as a young lady trampsing into the hood of San Antonio and giving it your best shot. I think there's definitely some prudence that has to be involved there. But as but you might be in a group. Uh, you might be fear going on a missions trip because you might fear how people will respond to you and that they'll harm you, maybe with their words. Maybe not physically, but harm you with their words and what they say back to you. So we've got to take into account these things. Now, I, I, I've given a small list—seven things I, I put on there: uh, family, sexual exploitation, bullying, uh, military persecution, physical suffering from that, terrorism, the unsaved—and and that's not um, the conclusive list. And it's not a list in order to make any harm uh, fear of people harming you seem trite. Uh, it might that might have exposed a fresh wound that you're struggling with. But uh, I would say that we need to, biblically, look at the problem in order for us to find the solution according to Scripture. And so we, when we see these things, these seven things that I've listed, and there are many others, I think it would be a good starting point. If you're struggling with fear that others will harm you in one of these areas, or this is spark thought in other areas you're struggling with this, take this list, go to a, uh, a wise biblical counselor, go to a wise brother or sister in Christ, go to an elder in this church, And seek help on how you can overcome that particular aspect of fear. Now, we've looked at physical harm, but we can't leave off the the fact that uh, we hurt, that people hurt us and we hurt others. Probably the most way we do this is verbally. We tend to hurt other people. And it would be great if we could just say, well, other people, if they just stop hurting me, we'd be fine. But we hurt other people all the time. And they hurt us, and oftentimes it's through words, non-physical abuse. Words are very powerful. We probably well know the phrase, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's a lie if there ever has been one. We all get hurt by others' words. It may be a verbally abusive boss. It may be a spouse. It may be a parent. Why do you think, according to Scripture, there's so much given On anger. Um, Children. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. The very next set of verses. Fathers do not provoke your children to anger. And one angry word. As we probably can all remember. Both as adults or as children. The times that our parents sinned in getting angry with us. Some of those are the freshest thoughts I have. When it comes to harm of different things. Was my father an angry man? No he was not. But the one or two times. It leaves the scar. And we all have that. So this would be something we've got to. Uh, think carefully about. And how to remedy. Now I would not be saying. That if you are currently in an abusive situation. That scripturally you are required to stay there. I don't think scripture says that at all. Uh, I think you are uh, Should seek to remove that from that situation some way. It may not be actually a physical removal. It may very well be a physical removal. But you should not just sit there and I lay by and take it if it's more than just uh, a casual word every once in a while. Love covers a multitude of sins. But if you're in a habitually abusive situation, you need to seek help. (coughs) Excuse me. It may be, uh, again... Going to a, a wise brother or sister in Christ. It may be going to an elder. But you do need to seek help from that situation. Fear of harm can often tempt us to have two types of attitudes. <coughs> two types of attitudes. The first is a victim mentality. Now, that doesn't mean that you may not be a victim. But what's a victim mentality? A victim mentality is taking all the past and applying it to the future. Thank you, Beecher. Victim mentality takes all the future difficulties and places the blame on past experiences. Saying, well... You know, look, I can't do such and such and this and this. I can't have this relationship. I can't speak boldly. I can't tell the truth. I can't confront someone in their sin. I can't uh, go be in a difficult position with this individual who may be. I can't do all these things because of what has happened in the past. That would be a victim mentality. Now, again, we're not saying just go back into an abusive situation, but if there's been forgiveness, if there's been reconciliation, if uh, you've grown in your walk with the Lord, you cannot allow that to paralyze you to whatever God may call you to do. The second attitude is self-pity. Quote, self-pity is another response to past experiences that seem to be causing fear today. It would be so much easier for me to trust the Lord if I only hadn't experienced this. I can never change from fearing man in this way. It's just the way I am. I'm really a worse sinner than others, I guess. Self-pity can be a very attractive response because it's feigning humility. And yet we must recognize that self-pity is simply another manifestation of pride. Just like the self-confident pride that seems obvious, self-pity at its heart is self-focused and seeks trust in self instead of God. Unquote. And both of these responses, both of these attitudes, whether a victim mentality or self-pity, is going to uh, not cause us to uh, fear less. In fact, we're going to fear more and we're going to love less because we're going to be tempted to withdraw from others rather than seeking to love them. And as Lou Priola well pointed out last week, and I would encourage you to listen to his message on bitterness, if you continue to struggle with this and don't grow and change from it, it can very quickly lead to bitterness. You get that seed planted as Lou talked about and you start watering a little bit and next thing you have a root that pollutes. Bitterness is a deeper sense of some of these other things. I'm quoting, as you struggle with these other responses and fail to repent of them and pursue Christ-like responses, they will grow into a deeper root of bitterness toward others, toward, towards other people and maybe even towards God himself. Let's go to Scripture. Genesis 12. Have a long list here of scriptural scriptural examples of those who feared that others would harm them in Scripture. We won't go through through the exhaustive list, but I want to point out a few. Let's look at Abraham in Genesis 12. We see here that... uh, In verse 10, Abram goes to Egypt. Verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. I mean, where does sin take you? You're a beautiful wife? Oh boy, I'm just so afraid they're going to hurt me, rather than wanting to defend his wife. Fear of others... That would uh, cause fear that others would cause harm on him, causes him to sin. He feared the future. He feared the potential harm. In fact, he was willing to even put his wife in harm's way in order for him not to be harmed. Let's go to Numbers thirteen. God has done these magnificent things for the Israelites. You, know, you would think if you saw the Red Sea parted, any fear of others would go out the window. Because you saw a once in a lifetime, maybe once in history, they actually saw it twice, they got to see it again, but once in history, something a body of water parted and held up. And yet they struggle. Numbers 13, verse 26. And they came to Moses and Aaron, these are the spies, and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We come to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb, The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, all these ites. And then you go to 33. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seem to them. The Israelites struggled with fear of man, that they would be physically harmed. And yet they had all the promises of Scripture. All the, prom, all the prom, not promises of Scripture. They had all the promises that God had already given them. They had all the personal testimony. And they struggled with this. Judges 4. Go with me to Judges 4. Joshua, Judges, Judges chapter 4. We see Deborah and Barak... Here we have a prophetess, Deborah, and Barak. And yet, who's running the show here? Verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me to battle, meaning, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now this is in no way uh, demeaning women, but this would be pointing out that men, you're called to lead, and you're called to take the initiative. And when Barak wouldn't do that, he was reprimanded, and it was because of his fear that he would be harmed. Now Gideon is an excellent example. We see him in Judges 6 and 7, but we have an interesting side of him. He's got, he's got the fear of man, and then he swings over here, and he's willing to do things for the Lord. But We see in Judges 6 or 7, he's got this call in verse 11. Judges 6, uh, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terabith of the at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the vine press to, hand, to hide it from the Midianites. And we have him hiding in this hole, um... Probably in a good for a good reason, uh, but then uh, the Lord calls him to do something, and he is very fearful of this and so you know you have all these tests and these things that di- different things that happen, and then he ends up uh, swinging to the other side. look at verse um, ten of Judges chapter seven. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah your servant. And you shall hear what they shall say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. It appears that initially Gideon had a very tough time of doing what God wanted him to do even after the flipping of the fleeces. God had to say, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you walk down in the midst of this camp and hear what I'm going to do. And the lists go on. We have Esther, who did not fear man, but feared God and was willing to do what needed to be done. We have Ruth. Boy, Ruth could have taken the much easier route, but she took a very difficult route and was willing to serve her mother-in-law, even to the point of potentially being physically abused. She went out into the fields and began to uh, reap some of the grain there. Daniel and his friends, they did not fear man, they feared God. Peter, go to 1 Peter uh, 3. Peter, <clears throat> Peter gives us both sides. Remember in the remember uh, after after Christ is arrested, he's um, in the courtyard there. First Peter three. He's in the courtyard and he rejects Christ, denies Christ three times. But then what does he do? First Peter three thirteen through fifteen. He exhorts us. Now who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed have no fear of them nor be troubled but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason the hope that is in you Peter was on both sides but you notice he repented of his sin and took the stronger position in fearing God Christ obviously is the perfect example he knew all these things would happen. Luke nine twenty two. The Son of Man must suffer. Christ saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He knew the pain. In the garden, sweat drops of blood, knowing the difficulty that lied before him. And yet he responded correctly. So how should we respond? Well, as I said at the beginning, the solution to Uh, These things are the same. We've got to understand that we need to fear God rather than fear man. We've got to go to the gospel. We've got to see what Christ has done for us. But let's look at a couple ways that the gospel, practically applied, actually helps. And we're going to look at uh, how the gospel would practically apply in physical abuse and verbal assaults. So... um, we're seeking to overcome this fear that people will harm us. And so we're going to the scriptures. We're studying uh, the word. We're seeking to grow in our fear of God. We're looking at the gospel, what Christ has done for us. The fact that he's taken all the physical harm uh, to the point of death for us. That we might live eternally with him. And then how do these things actually apply? Let's say there's physical abuse that you're struggling with fear. That somebody will physically abuse you. Well, you go to the scripture and you see that the Lord will ultimately protect his children. I read Psalm 94 earlier. Any physical harm we encounter in this life is a part of God's sovereign and good plan for our lives. We read Matthew 5 earlier and Romans 8, 28 and 29. It is not random and not without purpose. This will also keep us from wrongfully Wrongly comparing our fear or experiences with those of others. If we go to Isaiah 53 and we see we're to share in the sufferings of Christ. And what he has done for us. Then we can't shift the blame. We can forgive because of scripture. Because of the gospel. And love those who have harmed us. Because Christ has already done this for each of us. So you're taking the gospel. You're taking scripture. And you're applying it to the struggle that someone will physically harm you. What about a, a verbal harm well we know uh, according to first uh, peter and philippians that he when he's reviled reviled not again christ endured both physical harm and the cruel insults of others if actual physical harm can lead to a sense of victimization This type of attack can more often tend towards a stoic response. Meaning, if somebody's going to verbally assault you, you can kind of take the stiff upper lip approach. And yet Christ humbled himself. It certainly hurt. But he recognized uh, that he was not a victim. Uh, Not to take the victim mentality. He was a victim. To not take the victim mentality. And yet to trust God to get him through. We respond like Christ who didn't respond with counter-assault. And ultimately, we love and serve others regardless of how we fear they may take advantage of our love. You know, the the thought, the rationale that goes through our head, sinful rationale, is, well, if I do this, they're just going to spit in my face. And yet, we're supposed to repay good for evil. We're supposed to heap blessings upon those who harm us. We're supposed to bless those who curse us and do good to those who hate us. We're supposed to respond faithfully the way we're supposed to according to Scripture, irregardless of how others take our response. So just a few ways that if we go to Scripture, we can take them practically. And what I would encourage you to do is if you're struggling with it, find some verses that help you uh, remember the fact that God will ultimately protect His children. Go and read uh, how Christ did not respond in um, In when he did not respond when he was accused go to go to just just for example go to first peter 2 verse 20 and this would be the type of thing you would memorize yeah <clears throat> uh, if you have a, a, a if you're involved with someone who's who's an angry person and maybe they're, maybe they're dealing with that anger, maybe they're not dealing with that anger. Maybe they're struggling with it and they're seeking to remedy, uh, through the Scriptures, uh, grow and change from that. Or maybe they're not. This would be something that you could memorize if you're under that harm. Or if you are a person who's angry, this is something you could memorize so that you would help to respond when, uh, in, in, an, in an unangry manner. Verse 20, "...for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure?" Justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's not saying that if you're in an abusive situation, you just take it. But what he's saying is love covers a multitude of sins. So if you're in a situation where someone else is working through sin, uh, this is a way you can respond. You can use scriptures to help you and remind you, huh? man, that really hurts but I'm going to choose to forgive them and choose to love them as Christ would want me to. Now, uh, we have... uh, Before I pray here, I want to encourage uh, you, if you're singing in the choir, uh, you all are singing this morning, so I'm going to go ahead and release those before I pray and close this here. If you are singing in the choir, uh, why don't you go ahead and just stand up and slip on out. That way you can get upstairs and get to practicing very quickly here. Um in order for us to be able to get the practice in y'all need, and then I'll close here in prayer. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we we thank you for the day. And we thank you, Father, for Scripture, that you've given us all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you, Father, that you... um, have given us wisdom about these things and how to fight them. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that there, there, is, re- there, there is a remedy, uh, the remedy. There is a solution to all that we would struggle with in, 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 as it regards sin, especially, particularly fear of man, that they will harm us. We thank you, Father, that uh, you've given us example of what to do when people do harm us. And you've also given us clear direction on what we should do if we're in a harmful situation. Father, I pray and ask that you would strengthen us now in our fellowship, that we would grow strong as the body of Christ, and we would seek to love one another. And uh, though we are oftentimes harmed by others, that we would not uh, respond in a harmful way back to them or to someone else. But we would be very careful with our words, making sure that they're seasoned well uh, with the gospel. Thank you for the day you've given us, Lord. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.